0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Torreshek podcast. A few things before I let you get to the show. We are going to be live as part of Podcast for Palestine on Sunday, the 28th of January, in the Sugar Club. And there are limited tickets available on eventbrite.ie right now. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It's 15 quid a ticket, and all proceeds are going to Gaza. So come along, support a great cause, and have a great night's entertainment. Hope to see lots of you there. Uh, also, we need your support. The check relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road. We have no ads, we have no sponsors, and we don't have to pull any editorial punches because of any corporate interests. We're activists first and foremost. And when we say we rely on you, it's because we are you so if you get something from the pods give something back join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise the link for that is at the bottom of the podcast you're about to listen to thanks for all the support thanks for everybody who likes and shares but come on board for 2024 and help this independent podcast platform keep trucking and keep throwing the odd haymaker here and there i'm shutting up now enjoy the show <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. Well, in fact, folks, no, we are doing a tortoise shack special because I am delighted to be joined on the podcast by my longtime stable mate and host of Reboot Republic and probably Ireland's leading housing activist. And I don't give credit very often, Rory, So, but there you go. There's a little bit of praise coming your way. Doctor, Doctor Rory, I'm going to fall over here, Tony. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, look, <laughs> thanks, it, Tony. It, it, it's Great been to be a, here. No, no, no. Before we wrap the year, I think it's important to say that you've been absolutely instrumental in continuing to keep housing on the agenda and all the work that you've done, the activism that you've done. I I remember only last February we had people out marching in the streets. I think we want to recapture that spirit in 2024, uh, and I think uh, you will definitely have got plans for that in, in in the months ahead. But no, a little bit of credit where credit's due. Um, so, so well done on that. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to get that referendum on the right to housing, but we will return to that, I would imagine, very quickly in January.
1: Yeah, no, we will. It, it's been a, um, a strange year again in housing around, you know, the, again, absolute failure of government to meet affordable housing targets worsening crisis, you know, rents from vulture funds, but some great action we've seen from the likes of the Tenants Union Katu, Um, we have seen, you know, the the eviction ban was, lifting of that eviction ban was, you know, as I described before, one of the worst decisions any government has ever made, knowingly putting people into homelessness but the public reaction to that there was a huge reaction against that um, and continued ongoing work by the likes of Uplift and many, many other groups working Um, on housing and highlighting housing and working to support tenants and those in social housing. And just to say, you know, we had a very difficult year in terms of the rise in anti-immigrant sentiment and the Ireland for All demonstration was definitely the highlight of the 50,000 people uh, who were out and supporting that and continue to work at community and grassroots levels, supporting an Ireland for All. And and, And we can't but talk as well, Tony, about the amazing work that you and the ah. Echo Chamber have been doing around Palestine and Gaza and that just um, breaking all our hearts and breaking us completely around that.
0: Um. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, we, you know, it's so going to be hard. You, thank
1: you for the work you're doing on that.
0: I appreciate it. But look, we better move on because there is one story that that overhangs everything and has done for a number of years. And one of our returning guests, returning world champion, uh, campaigning activist, journalist, uh, John Gibbons is back. And John, 2023 was supposed to be the year that we got some concrete actions. Uh, And I I put it to you that um, it has been more, and I'm going to quote Greta, blah, blah, blah. How are you, my friend? Good to see you
2: uh good to be here tony and uh, and rory yeah yeah 2023 will be a year that will be remembered at least until 2024 um so we've basically it's been a record smashing year right right across the right across the board um highest ever recorded atmospheric co2 highest ever atmospheric uh, methane uh, nitrous oxide uh, highest ever uh, carbon emissions from fossil fuels and cement highest daily global temperature anomalies, hottest year in the the instrumental record, probably the hottest year in 125,000 years, Uh, highest sea surface temperatures ever recorded, lowest Antarctic sea ice extent ever recorded, highest Earth energy imbalance ever recorded, greatest gain in sea level rise ever recorded, the most global energy consumed by humanity in a single year ever recorded, uh, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's been a record-smashing year. Uh, Next year will be worse because we are on the cusp of an El Nino. It did start probably June, July of of, uh, 2023, but the real impact of an El Nino, there tends to be a system lag. So we'll only feel the El Nino probably into 2024. Uh, So we can expect over 2024 um, significant warming, which is pretty mad because uh, we've had a bunch of months where the 1.5 degrees Global threshold temperature threshold has already actually been breached, so it's it's absolutely mad stuff. Uh, overall, I think we're 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 rocking towards about one point four degrees, which is just absolutely crazy, Bill, because we were tracking one point two degrees a year ago, and we've we've had this sudden jump, uh, and you know every fraction of a degree they don't sound like a lot, but each of those uh, fractions of a degree has absolutely colossal impacts on uh, planetary systems. And yeah, and of course, in the midst of all that, we have the political process rumbling along 20, 25 years behind the the science. The big breakthrough, Tony, as you know, this year was, at COP28 uh, in Dubai, was that the nations of the world agreed to use the phrase fossil fuels for the first time in its 28-year history. Just the phrase, Not to phase them out, not to phase them down, but to have a magical thing called transitioning away from. Now, I mean, you know, it's like transitioning away from, from, uh, I don't know, chocolate cake by moving to to eating, uh, I don't know, cream cake instead. But no commitments, no targets, and of course, everything completely voluntary. So, uh, it's a hell of a mismatch between the the as I described there the, the, the global climatic indicators they're all flashing red every single one of them. If this was a planetary dashboard, the whole thing would be flashing red on the one hand and then we have this semi-paralyzed political process where um, I think I used the analogy in a piece I wrote for the examiner. I said that the you know the analogy I used for for the, the cop process, the climate talks is that it's like a, it's like watching a dog riding a bicycle. You know, it's not making much progress, uh, it isn't very elegant, but the real surprise is that it happens at all, right? That we can actually get 200 countries into a room to agree on anything. But the problem with this is, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're probably just going to you finish your point and then i come in.
2: Sure, yeah. And the problem here is that, you know, there's a saying that says that that winning slowly on, on climate is the same as losing. Right. So making yeah. teeny tiny little little kiddie steps of progress in the in the face of a, of a, a global emergency. Uh, you know, it's, it's like you can use all your Titanic analogies that you wish. Uh, it's like but it's like bailing the Titanic out with a spoon. Right. And really, the political process is lagging decades behind the the physics, unfortunately.
1: And, and that's exactly what I was going to say, that the presentation of the outcomes of COP, being like, you know, there was something achieved, and even like you saw it in RTE you know, across the board. The mainstream media presented as wasn't it an incredible achievement to have all these countries together? And Can mentioning I, the word fossil Rory, fuels, Rory, Rory, like Rory, really, I'm, we should be.
0: Rory, I want <laughs> to, I want to, I want to let you continue. But I want, but I want to be very clear on this. What was a quote? The Irish Times said, "A bad deal is better than no deal." And RTE hailed a historic agreement. So they're just, they're just the actual headlines. So go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely, and it wasn't the just RT. You know, it was
1: BBC. It was the whole lot globally. Do you know what I mean? The global media, mainstream media, was completely uh, putting this across as some major achievement. And I, you know, would put it to you, John, that actually, you know, following on from Tony's question, it would have been better with No Deal because then at least we would have seen the reality rather than actually a spin being put on this sense that something is being done, and really the, the fossil fuel companies, the big corporations. The economic model of continued, endless consumption is absolutely still in control, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that that model remains intact. One shout out, by the way, Rory, I'd like to add there is uh, one new player, not a new player, but a relatively new player at COP level, and who are really beginning to flex their muscles now, is the global livestock sector. They've recognised, as the fossil fuel industry did uh, years ago, that... Uh, climate action represents an existential threat to their business model. And they have really, really stepped up uh, in terms of actively setting about to scupper climate negotiations. And I guess there's a a strong Irish uh, relevance there because um, obviously there's a group called the Global Meat Alliance who are leading this charge of of kind of disinformation and uh, propaganda around uh, the impact of livestock and climate. And And it's well represented by our Irish interests. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you know, you're saying uh, shout out to them like in our heads, it's governments who are meeting at COP and making these decisions. But clearly that's not the case. And we hear this about lobbyists, like how influential are lobbyists in the actual... Um, and of course, we say lobbyists, you know, on the one hand, you know, you could say NGOs, campaigners are lobbyists. But yeah. when we're talking about them in terms of who are the influential ones and how do they influence these negotiations if the negotiations are supposed to be between governments?
2: Sure. Well, let's start out again. We'll go back to our fossil fuel friends. Um. It's reckoned that 2,400 uh, formally registered fossil fuel lobbyists attended Dubai. 2,400, right? That's a quadrupling of fossil fuel industry presence over uh, the last COP. So they have really, really upped their game. And I think it underlines that they recognized finally, after years of bullshit, that they're, the heat is on, right? They know there's pressure. They know that governments are beginning to experience genuine pressure, mostly because people can see with their own eyes uh, climate destabilization is happening all around us in real time. We in Ireland, we're slightly buffered from it, a little bit at the moment, uh, but many other countries are getting absolutely hammered. Absolutely hammered with with uh, climate damage is now running into into tens of billions of euros every single year, and, and and that curve by the way continues to go up. So there is real pressure, and that means for the fossil fuel industry, they've got you know trillions of dollars of sunk wealth still in the ground. Now, if somehow or other we were to have a global uh, agreement to actually live within within scientific limits. That means trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of uh, fossil energy will never be dug up, right? That will have absolutely mind-bogglingly large uh, implications, not just for corporations, by the way, but also for states. I mean, there's a whole bunch of states who essentially run their stuff from the revenues from, from fossil fuels. I mean, if you take, you know, I think somebody described Russia as a, as a, a fuel, what is it, a, a petrol station with an army. Right. I mean, essentially, their economy is involved in pumping and selling oil and gas. They don't do very much else. Um, You know, and so the idea that these states, some of them also, as we know, some of the petrol states are some of the worst states in the world. And these these matters are are directly connected. um, They're not going to voluntarily give up pumping one solitary barrel of oil. I think we need to be super clear about that uh, and what it's going to take to transition the world so-called away from, from fossil fuels. And I guess the, the thing maybe that isn't really understood here is, you know, we have this concept or this, this thing called the global carbon budget. Um, we've got, at the rate that we're currently burning and releasing fossil fuels and, and methane into the atmosphere, we've got, oh, you know, we can, we will, we will have exhausted the 1.5 degree uh, global carbon budget. And when I say exhausted, by the way, I mean for the next thousand years, right? We'll have exhausted that budget probably well before 2030, right? Not 2050, 2030, right? And um, once you go beyond 1.5, you're pretty much locked onto a trajectory for two degrees. Now, you think of some of the, some of those stats I rattled off at the earlier, at the earlier part of the discussion about the, the, Climate destabilization—we're experiencing this right now at below 1.5. Once we move above 1.5 and on towards two degrees, I mean, essentially, uh, we're looking at a different planet, uh, and that's coming out of super
0: fast. But John, can I, John, course, can I push yeah. in for a moment to make a point? Because there's like—I don't know if you were paying much attention to American politics at the moment. There, the, Trump is ahead in all the polls. He's uh, he's playing very well with the with the base. All he needs to do is flip, you know, a, a couple of tens of thousands of votes to really get back into power and he said on day one I'm going to drill baby drill. That's what he said. He said I'll be a dictator on day one and drill baby drill. But that actually puts a lie to what's actually happening already. Joe Biden is drill baby drill. <laughs> like He's just not talking about it. He's not boasting about it. He's ramped up levels that, that we have like the the Constantin um, Gordiev lives in 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 Denver, Colorado, and he knows there's a, a it's it's an oil producing region just just on his bore on his on like up the road from him, and he tells me it's boom time for for that. So so all of this political um, theater is playing out, even with the good guys. The good guys are bad guys as well here, and this is terrifying. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I cast your mind back to uh, Obama. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Obama. I remember one of his stump speeches where he stood up and said that uh, you know America has pumped more oil under my administration than any other administration in history, and he wasn't saying it by the way as a criticism, right? So the point is they're all locked into the dominant paradigm, and that is that we live in a growth economy, and that growth is fueled directly by the combustion of cheap accessible fossil energy nothing has come along in the last 20 or thirty or fifty years to challenge that basic paradigm but, well sorry that's not true nothing has come along to to actually face down the paradigm the paradigm has been challenged by the fact that we're running into biophysical limits all over the place so that that 's the challenge but but politically the reality that we have got ourselves into a deathlock with um, fossil fuel burning that reality hasn't gone from, if you like, from the from the halls of science into uh, our our daily discourse. Like you, you you listed Tony a couple of the newspaper headlines. You know the the reality is you can only frame success by to the degree to which we have adhered to the physical limits of the biosphere. That's the only measure of success. Politics doesn't matter a damn. It's simply irrelevant. Uh, What matters is physical limits, you know, how much of a carbon budget have we got, uh, what degree have we been able to remain within it, uh, and so on. That's all that matters. And historically, if there is, and when I say historically, we could be talking about the geological record here rather than the historical record. All that will matter is whether we obeyed the, the, the basic laws of nature or whether we didn't. And if we step outside those laws of nature for very much longer, well, then we become a footnote in Earth history. And at the moment, uh, we're trending towards uh, that. So that that's sort of where we're at. Hmm.
1: And, and John, isn't like one of the, the difficult challenges in this, in, in engaging people, um, something that Naomi Klein, who's been on this podcast before, you know, talks and has talked a lot about for many, many years is, you know, how can you expect people to think about the end of the planet when they can't think about the end of the week in terms of Poverty, uh, not just poverty, but you know, middle class people really struggling in terms of you know housing, cost of living, and that there needs to be a complete integration of enhancing the quality of life for the majority of people within a transition to a green economy and a green social economy, and the concept of you can call it whatever you want, but. Eco socialism, eco alternative economy, eco economy based on, you know, social justice. That actually really, we need to put these questions of how do we enhance housing conditions, you know, through retrofitting, you know, providing proper health care, you know, valuing the care economy properly, a whole reshaping of our economies that would actually mean better outcomes for most people into the climate discussions. But they seem absent because people are just talking about you know what's needed to be done and the changes that need to happen and of course, those changes around social justice would also require those same fossil fuel companies, those same corporations, those same governments having to look at issues of redistribution of you know properly meeting people's needs and changing the way economies function yeah,
2: I mean look this what you've described there is every capitalist nightmare they recognize that um, there is no future for capitalism in a a world of climate justice, in a world where we've actually begun to solve these problems. Because, of course, um, that budget, that that share of the global pie, whether it's the resource pie or the atmospheric carbon pie, the issue really is the grossly unequal sharing of that pie. We know, for example, there were statistics on this recently that, the top 1% of the world's population are now producing um, more more carbon emissions than the bottom 66%, two-thirds of people on Earth. So what we have here isn't, I mean, you hear people say, oh, it's overpopulation, it's this, that, and the other. The reality is it is a chronic problem of chronic overconsumption by the extremely wealthy elites that are pushing us that they have the foot in the accelerator, and uh, as you know, uh, Rory better than most. The problem here is that the, the 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 same people who are pushing the foot on the accelerator are also the people who are on speed dial with the politicians, who are mm-hmm. you know wh- well got with the media, who basically control the levers of power, uh, and that. You know that remains the analysis that says that we can sort of technologically or some other way kind of figure our way out of the climate crisis without basically a equity and redistribution. I mean, uh, it's completely unrealistic. There, you know, we cannot, you know, have a green capitalism that says that we will have green billionaires ruling over green proles. It's not going to happen. There isn't enough, and also, of course, it isn't that the billionaire class is static. It is. Expanding, and it's expanding its share of the pie J- 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 every year that goes I, by. I need to yeah. come
0: in on that, John, because this is what I, where I want to <laughs> go with this, which is quite. I'm I'm smiling here, folks, and apologies because it's kind of this kind of oh this this relentless feeling of like sure it's all hopeless. So we talked about I talked about how great Rory's work on housing activism has been. One of the biggest companies in the world, and um, that that literally has um, financialized housing is BlackRock. BlackRock own more properties than any other single entity in the globe guess who are the biggest investor in fossil fuel and new licenses for the last number of years Blackrock they are way ahead of us here they're they're wiping the floor with us and then I only need to throw a rock down to the to the Docklands and I'll find the European headquarters of the two largest financing companies be it Citibank and and, and JP Morgan who finance all of this and they're sitting down there for let's say tax avoidance purposes or whatever the solution is but they're there they're in dublin so you know we can talk about me and rory using putting out our green bin every two weeks and um going to the bring center and all the rest of it black rock and these big financial houses they're wiping the floor with us john and we don't even know that the game is it has begun yeah
2: and and it is kind of paradoxical because parts of of uh, industry are are already really creaking, and the the, the sort of the fault lines are spreading. So, for example, the, the global insurance and reinsurance sector is absolutely getting hammered. It's getting creamed. Right? Uh, we now have a situation where, in many parts of Florida and California, two of the biggest states in the U.S., insurers are not writing new policies for either for for homes or for businesses. They're saying these these places are uninsurable. Now, as that begins to spread, as uninsurable risk begins to spread essentially uh, i mean insurance if you like props up much of uh, commercial activity it's next to mm-hmm. impossible to yeah. undertake complex commercial activity unless yeah. you can get it insured and that includes trade by the way the ability yeah. to insure trade so you know it is it is strange on the one hand that we're all you know steaming steaming towards the towards the the, the waterfall or the, the 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 whatever you want to call it steaming towards the cliff on the one hand and yet on the other hand if they simply look within their own uh sectors they 'll see parts of them that are already beginning to to sort of again flash red the the global insurance sector as i said is is clearly in crisis, and that 's a domino that is going to bring a number of other dominoes crashing down with it so it is it is a curious thing, but I do believe and maybe this is just a personal belief that the you know, the wealthier people get, and I, I don't mean regular people, but like, you know, seriously wealthy people, the dumber they get. This is just a wild hypothesis of mine that, you know, you can have a pretty smart millionaire, but by the time that person has become a billionaire, they're as dumb as a bag of spanners. I could give you a couple of examples, right, that the, the acquisition of vast wealth appears to have exactly the opposite effect on people. It seems to turn them into spanners. They stop listening to people. They get surrounded by, by acolytes. And you might say, well, what, where am I going with this? But some of the people we're talking about here are some of the most powerful and influential people in the world. And they're, you know, we're, we're elevating. Now, maybe it's not that they, as I said, that they necessarily start out that way. But I think the process of acquiring power and wealth um, is incredibly corrosive to, to all, but the. the it takes a very unusual person. You know, they say uh, people can survive failure, but can they survive success? Right. The real challenge of yeah. personality. I, I think and though, John
1: I think though, John, it's also not just the individual, it's the system and the structures and how all the different webs are interwoven around, you know, power, what we talked about earlier earlier in terms of lobbyists, in terms of even within the civil service, and um, within what you're told is possible and what is not, you know, the decisions you can make um as ministers and In terms of then, you know, global, you know, billionaires you're talking about as well, that it's arrogance, of course. There's a huge arrogance to wealth as well and to that power and what you think you can do and. Um and there has to be a complete arrogance that sure if the planet falls apart, sure, we'll have our pods or wherever the hell we have our bunkers built or our outer sp- you know, you know, what Musk talked about, you know, building the the X ex- whatever planet that's connected, new planet connected to our planet and all sorts, that they really believe that. Then they believe that they will, you know, they're not going to be affected by this. And yeah, sorry, you want to come in? Yeah.
2: No, no, just to say, yeah, I mean it's a weird thing, but this concept of riding out the apocalypse. Uh, this has sort of left science fiction and it's now, uh, it's a real thing that this idea that, that people somehow or other, that we can burn the world down. And if you think about how capitalism has worked so far, that's worked pretty well. So I'll give you a simple example. You know, let's say that you're, you know, you put all your wealth into, uh, fishing. So you you buy the biggest trawlers in the world and you mm. empty the world's oceans, right? Yeah. Now, on, under normal economic models, you've just bankrupted yourself because you've destroyed the basis of your wealth. But yeah. of course, thanks to the fungibility of wealth, it doesn't matter. You can destroy the oceans, take the billions you've made, and turn it into something. Turn that turn that cash into something, and go off and do the same thing somewhere else. So rather than learning the lessons of physical limits, wealth. And the and the ability to turn stuff into money that common denominator means yeah. that we're not, that the limits we should hit. In other words, if if we overfish and we destroy the resource, you know, in nature, if if a species overruns its its habitat, it pays a very high price in terms of die off. That that is normal. Humans have sort of trip that switch by being able using the, the this concept of money to yeah to flat, but that's all. But yeah. that's
1: also John free market economics. That's not just oh, yeah, about money. That that is the mm. dominant economic e- economics are dominant. It, that's taught. That is used as our you know function of our economy doesn't value like they taught i remember doing economics in trinity and been taught by danny mccoy um, who is now of IBEC. being told you know about environmental economics he taught me environmental economics and what did he talk about the environment these were negative externalities these were like costs that just might have you know impact from outside the system but the impact in the environment was never considered in resource extraction it was never valued and and it brings you back to you know there's a huge increase thankfully and you look for areas and hope in like indigenous ways of valuing society of understanding you know development and they value nature they value you know the the um the different cultures around the world and different ways of looking at how economics Our economies function, our societies function. That actually, it's the values need to completely change, and what we consider is important.
2: Yeah, and uh, as the man says, Rory, I'm glad you you brought up uh, economics and economists. They're a particular um, kind of hobby horse of mine. Um, Like there was a piece I read in, in, I think it was the Sunday Times uh, recently, where. Uh, there. Well, the guy isn't an economist, as happens, but he's a financial lecturer in in Trinity, and he has a column in, in in the paper. And he was explaining how you know all this blah blah blah, to use Tony's phrase, about climate change is all so overdone. And he explained how he said, look, um, current models suggest that the global economy, as in uh what what he calls welfare, is going to increase. By 2100, by 450%, right? So we're all right. going to be four and a half times richer by 2100. He said, however, if you factor in climate change, that will reduce to 436%, right? So he said, okay, we lose 14% over the century. But you sure, look, in the scheme of increasing 450%, it's nothing. Now, I remember reading that and thinking, has this person, you know, been taken to the, I don't know, to the, to the, to the the pochine, right? I mean, this <laughs> stuff is completely mad. Now, can I, so can I just, I need, I need, I need to, I need, yeah. I need
0: to I, we won't name the individual, but I will say he did set up a libertarian think tank and he was, uh, it, it all wrapped up and ended up falling on its arse because he was, uh, a disagreement with fellow founders because they were taking money from tobacco lobbyists to build plain packaging. So that was uh that's that's the truth of that individual's um uh, financial um actions. Go ahead, John.
2: Well, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't comment on on that, Tony. I I, I just stick into, to to this. The, I guess the point is that he's drawing information from what I would call a poisoned well. Okay, the poisoned well is principally poisoned by one individual, believe it or not, a chap called Professor William Nordhaus who's the so-called father or grandfather of climate economics, right? This is the guy who got the, the economist version of a Nobel in 2018. And nice. Nordhaus, I mean, this is the guy, for example, who used his uh, political heft back in the 70s to discredit the Limits to Growth book, right? This is how influential this guy has been over the last 50 years and and how long he's been around. But critically, Nordhaus developed this this economics model called DICE, right? To, to basically put a value an economics value on climate risk, right? Now, the DICE model, without boring the pants off people, basically, this model, this integrated risk model, is embedded inside the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's climate risk assessment models, right? Now, not the physical parts, but the economic parts, okay? In other words, the bullshit part of the IPCC is contributed by Nordhaus. Now, in that those the data that I just referred to that guy, that's he comes out with the fairy cakes analysis that uh, and the way Norhouse put it in fact is that he said the optimal point at which the costs of climate change and the costs and the costs of dealing with climate change, they the, the, the moment, if you like, the, the, the optimum point occurs, he said at between three point five degrees and four degrees centigrade. Right. And this <laughs> So that's oh, yeah, when you should I take mean, action. <laughs> Yes. He said there's below three degrees centigrade. Um, there's costs. no economic incentive. There's, n- there's no incentive. And he came up with this madhouse uh, model based on some, a series of calculations that are uh, completely divorced from reality. So, for example, he said that uh, 87% of all economic activity in the world happens indoors. And of course, if something is indoors, it can't be affected by climate change. If there's a roof over your shed now, okay. If a hurricane flattens your shed or it gets it gets flooded, uh, but according to Nordhaus, he automatically excluded eighty percent, sorry, eighty seven percent of all the world's economic activity. And say in the case of the U.S., uh, he you know he accepted that the food systems were were very vulnerable, but he said they're only three percent of the economy. Ergo, they're irrelevant, right, to his model. Wow. So my point is. This
1: is the it's greatest. only like food. What do we need that for? Yeah.
0: Can I? Can I? Can I again yeah. be the fact check on it? One well, thing's funny. That was 2018. He won 2015's Nobel laureate. It was Angus Deaton who came out this year and said, "We need to get a act together on climate change, folks." There is, you know, yeah. like uh, Angus Deaton is a, is a Nobel laureate as well, and said, "This is this is madness." So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah.
2: Uh, the thing. The thing is, Tony. What's important to remember is that that um, Nordhaus, you know, has somehow or other has retained his credibility because he says all the right things oh, of course we need to do this but we need to do it rationally and we need to do it in a sensible way yeah, but a sensible yeah. way is he, his his guidance which has informed the documents produced by banks by insurance companies by financial institutions risk models use dice inside them right and it's complete crap right widely recognized complete crap and you might say how does total crap like this get into models and why hasn't it been rejected it's complete crap that people want, they don't want to believe that there are physical limits. Nordhaus gave them this fancy model that said you can pretty much ignore all the physical limits and economics will trundle on. And of course, unfortunately, it is, it, it is proven to be crap. But somebody actually in a, in a piece I was reading about him recently said that Nordhaus may turn out to be the most consequential person in human history. And he may yet be responsible for the deaths of billions of people, which puts him on a, an interesting plane as, as being a, one of our history's kind of great figures. Maybe he'll make the cover of Time.
1: It, it certainly does. Uh, John, just a, a whole area that's very interesting to me and I think very significant in all of this is the psychology of all of it. And, mm. you know, there's so many angles you can look at this and it's such a huge subject. There's, you know, behaviour science, which is trying to, you know, convince us of the actions that need to be done for climate, our own individual actions. And then there is the, the actual real... You know, mental health and mental health um, impact in terms of climate anxiety on people, which is very real as well. Um, and then there's the whole question of how do we engage with people to um, really think about this genuinely as trying to bring about social change. So not in social change in the sense of a change in individual behaviour, but actually engaging with them on a level of emotions to get them to take action against and changing this system. Um, I don't know if you have reflections on any of of those or if you think about that um, angle of things.
2: Yeah, I think about all of the above uh, quite a bit, in fact. And, you know, it remains the case that many of the reforms that are required to basically put out the fire of global warming would, if done equitably, lead to a fairer, more decent world for most people, yeah. not for billionaires. I appreciate that there are gonna be victims in this. Some of those billionaires may, may end up becoming multimillionaires, which I guess from their point of view would be tragic, but for the rest of us, a, a model that, that sort of moves away from extreme wealth hoarding. And of course, as we well know, the problem with wealth hoarding goes far beyond wealth. It, it, it spills into the ability of wealth to then dominate politics. And this has really been the, the crunch of it. And I think that's the, the this is where, for example, after the after the lessons of, of the the the, the nineteen twenty nine crash in the US, where we had a their sort of fifty-year period of relative um, how do we say reduced inequality. I won't call it equality, but like sharply reduced inequality, mm-hmm. including uh, m- marginal tax rates for for high earners in the US in the 1960s running to ninety percent. Right. Yeah. And if you said that now, I mean they'd fall off a they'd fall off a cliff. Uh, but the point about that is that it allowed, it restrained the the it didn't prevent people from getting wealthy, but it prevented wealthy people from using the, the domino of wealth to create extreme wealth and extreme wealth then to basically completely throttle and dominate politics. Unfortunately, as we know all those lessons have been learned have been sorry have been forgotten they've been unlearned uh which always happens they say about 50 years after you fix something we break it again and um and now we're in a situation where you know you the things you've talked about rory that we need to fix right we know what those things are right and yeah. so many of them are redistributive things and the problem is the people who are standing against fixing those things um, the, the the media moguls, the 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 multinational corporations, um, they they have the political and the financial leverage, and we see it in places like Britain, for example, where these corporations, through their political, um, shall we say, affiliates, their wholly owned political affiliates, known as the Tory Party, are um, weaponizing the law against, for example. Um, peaceful protest we now see in a a democracy
0: yeah no no i think i think i think it's it's really important but i want i have a question kind of for both of you so this is my last last point on this we've we've spoken here and i think it's really great to have the conversation of the year in review see where we are to have the and john you've never been shy about telling us the reality of, of where where we stand on the precipice and how 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 it is you know John's not saying tomorrow, by the way, we're all going to be flooded. He's saying the flood is, the flood is on its way, folks. But I, I will say one thing that strikes me, we're talking about class awareness in some of this. So there's class awareness in the green movement. And, I, and again, this is a criticism of Ireland particularly, but there's no class consciousness And, um, I find the difference between, you know, being aware of the issues of, as Rory said, needing to retrofit homes. We've, we've retrofit more private homes than we have social housing stock. That doesn't make any sense. Um, we should be protecting people who are, who are worse off and we want to bring them in, uh, bring people along. So I'm asking, I suppose, both of you. How do we break that barrier in terms of understanding that as John, I don't care if billionaires are going to lose out, but what I do care about is when you' as you're as you're telling people to choose between eating and heating, that's a huge problem and we can tell them that it'll all be well and good but it's it's no it's not great if they're they're struggling right now this week to to because the little fellow wants something for Christmas and they don't have the money for it.
1: Rory? Yeah, I, I suppose <laughs> we're both jumping <laughs> between... Uh, you You start with that one there, uh, J- Rory. No, 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 John, you go. I Seriously, mm-hmm. um, I don't mind. Uh, in terms of it, Tony, I think it is the biggest question and absolutely is fundamental. And what I was asking earlier there about putting social justice central to the climate justice, climate change questions. And I, I think there is a necessity for all of us who genuinely see and are concerned about climate and nature um to connect it with the social struggles and the social issues. I think they have to be intimately connected. You cannot separate them. Any idea that they were separate before, um, they cannot be now because the only way we are going to convince people and engage them in, you know, being supportive and demanding major change on climate and the change in the economy and society required for that. Is for them also to feel and see that actually that will improve their lives, the lives of their community, the lives of people in the country, um, and the lives of ordinary people. And as John set out, and is increasingly we're I think it is coming into the climate movement, that sense of not just climate justice that those who lose in a transition, you know, will won't lose as much, the concept of the just transition. But actually there's a, a transformation within economy, within the economy and society. That has to take place within the within climate uh, adjustment, which will mean better housing for everyone, um, better health care, us valuing things like the caring economy, because that is the lowest carbon emitter of anything else, of any activity, is care. Yet under our current models, we don't value that. You know, carers have the highest rates of deprivation. I don't mean carers, but caring roles, children, people who, you know, are early years, educators, um, healthcare. all those areas are not valued properly. Instead, we value this wealth accumulation. So it is about, I think, absolutely rooting that the change, the climate justice is social justice and will it will that they're both, you know, hand in hand. And we need social movements and we need politics that expresses those and proposes those um and informs and educates
0: around them. And I think there is increasing recognition of that and that's where I, I would see. I agree with what you've said, not so much with your conclusion. I don't I, I see people coming back from Cops saying, send in the Irish, we got it done, historic deal. And it reminds me very much of the program for government that that we had, where there was a lot of wishy washy talk. I think there was forty eight uses of the word could and would and should, and uh, we've been very good at, at could, woulds and shoulds, and not very good at doing. Um, John, do you want to take a stab at that, or 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 uh, or, or, have I, or am I being too am I being too bullying now?
2: <laughs> well, okay, I'm I'm gonna loop back around a tiny bit to to Rory's point if I can, right? Um, it's just a, something that really stuck in my mind. It, it was a public debate I was in some time back, and, and, a, and a, a government minister threw it at me that people like me, as he put it, I love the old people like me, people you're like trying me. to drag us back. To, yeah, people like me, you're trying to drag us back to the 1950s. That's, that was the dreadful accusation thrown at me, right? You know, the sort of antediluvian types like me. And it did stick in my mind. And it occurred to me, you know, if we are super, super, super lucky, 2050 say in Ireland will look a bit like 1950 by which i mean our standard of living by what we in terms of consumption in terms of travel in terms of discretionary income in terms of you know the number of cars in the in the driveway will look a lot like 1950 if we're super super lucky right so try selling that to people right Try telling them that the best we can hope for in the future is to move to move effectively to go back to where we were close to hundred years ago, uh, where with much simpler lifestyles, our our consumption of discretionary goods like right, like travel, like you know sh- you know sort of electronics, all that stuff, that's all wound back. And we're living much more simply. Most of us are involved in some kind of horticulture or agriculture or whatever. And this gentleman is the absolute best-case scenario for 2050. A far more likely scenario is that we're not going back to the 1950s. We're going back to the 1250s, right? That's the trajectory that we're set for is a new medievalism, where the, basically the, the system falls apart, and we the whole thing breaks down in fact i, I was doing a review for 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 a, for a a publication just before i came on this call and i was looking at some of the some of the fiction around this things like i mean obviously we're 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 all well familiar with prophet song but we've a new book called the the 14th storm which looks at ireland in 2043 and i have to tell you it's beyond bleak right and this is the pathway that we're headed on uh and i suppose for me you know if you had a poll tomorrow and said to people, "Are you prepared, you know, to live like 1950, like to take the way Ireland was in 1950, take the church out of it, right? But just in terms of our level of material kind of wealth and comfort, right? I in Ireland, I, I bet you 95 percent of people would say absolutely not, right? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm not prepared to live like my grandparents. But what they don't, the bit that's missing from that discussion is what the alternative is. Number one and number two that while we've gained a lot as well over that last 80 years, we've also lost a hell of a lot too. So um, so that remains for me the, the real challenge is how to get to 1950 by 2050, right? Uh, and how not to get to 1250 by 2050, if that doesn't all sound too uh, convoluted.
0: John Gibbons, that was a powerhouse performance. As always, we're delighted to have you on the pod again. Um, you always paint a beautifully bleak picture as we run up to Christmas and the season of goodwill to all men. Um, no, we always—that's what I'm here for. No, <laughs> it's always John. We've always enjoyed your contributions. Can I? Can I just? Can I just say though? Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, Tony. Just, just to the very, the very
1: end. There is something in what John said there about that we have lost something. And I do think people recognize that, that we're not happy. People are not happy. And there is something deeply dysfunctional about the nature of our economy, the whole model. And there is something about going, you know, I think people increasingly recognize something has to change fundamentally. And so the question is, what changes? I think
0: it's a really, really yeah, good and
2: point. I think fi- Go ahead, John. Yeah, finding, you know, th- yeah, like if I can again, borrow language from economics briefly, right? You know, we can have a hard landing or we can have a soft landing, right? The, the trick is, uh, there's going to be damage either way. Right. But think of like getting that aircraft down, you know, you can sort of, the rate at which it hits the runway or hits the ground or hits the mountain, right? You, you have choices and this is always my thing. We have choices. You know, I'd like to get the plane with most of us intact onto the runway you know, and get most of us out of the plane intact. But that requires easing back on the throttle. That requires difficult decisions. I don't believe yet that enough people, and I include in the media, by the way, that the penny has dropped for them just that we're in an existential crunch. I, I think... When that if slash when that awareness comes, then everything will change, right? You can look into your history books. I one, one analogy that always sticks in my mind. I was, remember reading about the the, the siege of um, not Stalingrad but of Leningrad, which is a particularly grim three and a half year siege where the Germans, rather than trying to take the city, decided to simply starve everybody out. Right now, you know the 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 the, the tortured analogy I'm coming up with here is that the the lengths to which the folks in Leningrad, this modern Russian city with a tram system and an opera and all the rest, went to deluding themselves that the Germans would never get there and that it couldn't happen to them because of X, Y, and Z. It was that opening part of the book that always stayed in my mind was just the extent to which we humans uh, have a very passing relationship with reality, right? And even when the first 88 shells were landing in the streets in Leningrad, people were still saying to one another, it can't happen here. And the authorities were saying it can't happen here. And the people were reassuring themselves that it can't happen here. And in a sense, that's kind of uh, the situation
0: that we find ourselves in. Don't look up, says John. Um, I think we'll <laughs> listen folks we'll leave it there thank you so much for all your support everybody listening sharing um, and helping us throughout the year I do want to say thankfully in 2024 I will be joining the Orcas and going out wrecking yachts and that's what I'm going to be doing mainly I'm, I'm giving up the whole podcast game going into full time working with the Orcas because I think that's the only way we're going to get out of this entire mess talk, talk to you all soon. thanks Rory thanks John and we'll be back have you invested in the wetsuits Tony <laughs> have you I, 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 I'm, I, think I'll, I think I'll just have to tough it out my friend i think i have to tough it out listen folks leave it there take care of yourselves you'll you'll start to see swimming and get used to get get the body ready first (laughs) I, I, i look i look every bit of an orca soon at the way i keep going bye bye folks tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting
2: people only it's the Subscribe now on page.